0: Every day i'm being to this my people don't want no trouble we i
1: just want to leave this country has been racist for a long time so in my opinion i think protesting is very important law and we need our speech we need to be able to talk out and being quiet is not the choice. To speak out is very important.
2: Kidron sings. Simon speaks. What's at stake? Our willingness to demonstrate the courage to change. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show.
1: I just
0: want to leave. God protect me. I just want to leave.
2: First
1: the news Emmett Till,
2: Emmett Till. Sandra, Bland. Sandra Bland I can't breathe said George Floyd and they held him down I can't breathe until he would never breathe again that's why we're here today the program begins. After centuries of shielding racism as a way of life, why is rural America breaking rank in support of hashtag Black Lives Matter? In Calicoon, New York, a tiny 99.9% white upstate farm community of less than 3,000 residents, a crowd of 500 demonstrators gathered to protest the police murder of George Floyd and too many others. Joining us today on the show, seven organizers and participants who led the way in demonstrating the courage to change. Tracy Broyles, Marcus Brown, Isaac Green-Debol, Z.A. Koloa, Henri Padu, Zarina Padu, and Christina Smith. Let me begin with the organizers.
3: Tell me how this idea came to be. Chrissy Smith, I'm a business owner in Calicoon. We were watching on the national platform what was going on. All across the country and we felt or I felt very strange not taking a stand a visible stand of solidarity with this movement as a business owner but also as a private citizen it felt strange to go down the the rabbit hole that this was something that was going to pass for something that were going to happen in the cities and And that up here, the only way you could sort of stand in alliance with what was going on was through social media. So what I did is I I put together an email and I emailed a bunch of other small business owners along lower and upper Main Street. I just said, hey, listen, this is just not right. It doesn't sit well with me. How do you guys feel about putting something together? And then the response was really tremendous. I do think that we initially thought we would probably have about 40 to 50 people Uh, We had about five days to put the whole thing together, and I thought, I I think we all assumed it was going to be a very small gathering of people, but an important one, and it grew with, within five days, it grew to 500 people. So it was very exciting to see how once we just sort of made the space and announced that the thing was happening, we started to hear from many, many people locally who wanted to get involved. Tracy, how do you come into the picture?
1: I was on the email chain that Chrissy sent. Also, I live a little downriver of Calicoon, and you know, several of the small towns in the area were putting were, were organizing small rallies. And um, partly because of my history as an activist and some of my work here, some people had come to me asking me what I was going to do or did I know of anything. So when Chrissy sent the email. That was a really welcome opportunity for us to get going. It was pretty remarkable how quickly and how simply it came together. My experience so often is that these things get bogged down, you know, in in decision making. Really the skills, it was such an evidence of having a broad set of community members with a, a wide array of skills. So people just stepped up to the plate quickly.
2: Kalola, how did you get involved?
1: Dawn
0: Hyde. I've done poetry at her business before. I was actually one of the first people that brought poetry to her business. So she's decided to email me and ask me if I would either do a poem or come and speak. And? And I told her if inspiration came, that I would try. But I ended up saying, hey, I know a woman named Janice Adams. She's like, you should have her do it. She does this all the time. So I called the radio station got her to contact me, but eventually as I continued to think about it, inspiration came and then uh, I said, okay, well, I I guess it's meant for me to go.
2: Indeed, you gave us one of the most impressive and expressive moments of the afternoon.
0: My journey had taken me on a different road to a life in the country where I was introduced to hate, anger, and pain, mistrust, and above all, fear. These five acts have now become my silent mates. Faces and places that all look the same, light eyes that laugh and sneered as if I'd just come from outer space. Departed with those innocent days on the playground at P.S. 24 of ill, don't touch them, they're boys. Those playful words were replaced with yuck, don't touch me, you're black, the color may rub off on me. The teacher says you're our nigger and our slave. Nobody called me the N-words. I'm not using the N-word. I'm using what people called me. Who gives anybody that right to? I don't call any of you all crackers. Every single person who was born here or came here has a right to be American citizen. Yeah. Who the hell is someone else to tell them, you have no right to be American?
4: My name's Isaac Green People. I actually was not involved in any of the organizing um, despite being very active in the community I did get the invitation from Chrissy and I sent it out to neighbors and people I knew and I just showed up with my camera being a documentary filmmaker and it was not difficult to know what to film having you know lived a lot of my life in Calicoon I've never witnessed anything like what I saw that day Um, it was incredibly powerful emotional and I was so honored to be able to film it and to work with most of the people here on helping to put together a short video that we can share with others who weren't able to be there.
2: And we're so glad you did, because otherwise I don't think it would have been as documented as well as you did document it, and we all thank you for it. I, I think the history of the town is going to thank you for it. It is a moment when the town actually spent Up to something that maybe many people thought it could not step up to. Some probably thought it should not step up to. But ultimately the town did step up in amazing fashion. Well, the number is 500 people. Also with us are sister and brother,
5: Zarina and Henry Padu. Hi, I'm Henri Padu. I got involved when I started going around on Snapchat and on Facebook. So I was like, do you know who's organizing this? Is there any way I could speak there? So then me and Chrissy got to talking and then she asked if I knew any other speakers. And I was like, oh, I can definitely find more speakers. And then I told my sister about it. And she was like, oh, I'll speak there. And I might have a couple other people who want to speak there. And I was like, awesome, this is perfect. Then I went back to Chrissy, told her everything, and then bada-beam, bada-boom. Then we were there.
2: not. what made you want to actually participate?
6: Me and my brother have always had a very close bond. And um, I feel like, yes, there's a big umbrella with all Black Lives Matter, but the Black men are really being targeted right now. and. Um, I feel like I hear his compassion when he talks and the hurt in his voice and me standing by him and supporting him is something that I could not not do. I had to stand by my brother and support him as a Black sister. So that's really why I came and participated as well. It's crazy that saying Black Lives Matter is a controversial statement today. We're not saying that we're better than anyone else and no one else matters. We're just saying that we matter too. How many of you seen posts on Facebook or Twitter where someone says black lives matter, then there's always that one girl or guy following it saying, no, all lives matter, not just black lives. We could pick up a history book and see if that's true We can look around and see what's going on in the world and see if that's true. It could have always been all lives matter if history was different. For example, most people fear what we don't know. So when you see a tunnel, it's dark and cold and you can't see at the end. Most people would be scared to go in there because they don't know what's in there or what's at the end. But if you have the courage to travel the tunnel, you'd find that nothing but beauty is at the end. You got it, <clears throat> Rest in peace George Floyd and all the other brothers and sisters who lost their lives because of the color of their skin and systematic racism.
2: Now the two of you, your father asked to speak in the moment and it was an unusual
5: moment. It's good to see everyone. Coming together for a cause, and it's 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 about love, mm-hmm. you know. Love, love heals all things.
2: All, things. all things. Something about your dad.
5: My dad, he's a very encouraging man in my life, shall I say? He's always been a strong leader. So he just came up to me. And he was like, "Oh, like, do you guys need any more speakers?" Like when he first got there, and I was like, "I don't know if we need any more speakers. We should be good." But I'll ask them if you want to speak. Like, I'll see if you can speak. He was like, yeah, I just want to say a few things. I was like, okay, cool. So we finished the march and everything. And after we were done, he came back and asked, can I speak? And I was like, I'm sure that's not a problem. Like, just, you know, go up and say what you need to say. And then he got up there and just spoke what was inside of his heart. Love, love heals all things. Marcus. Marcus, what was your
7: feeling about the march? Um, actually, my experience, I, I like to feel that I was the last the last person um, because um, I was totally removed from every from all this. And really, it started with a comment that I made on Calico New York's um, Facebook page. And uh, when I saw it, it triggered me. And there was a flood of all of these negative experiences growing up around that town and in the school of Delaware Valley Central School when it was open. And um, I just snapped. And I just said, you know what? I just got to speak my truth. I don't know. I wasn't thinking about it. It just flooded. And I think it was just 26 years of all of these emotions just typed. And then um, I shared it. I shared that post with a, a few family and friends because part of my experience, um, it affected my adult life. I, it's hard for me to form connections with people, and I'm in the process of starting to build friendships now. Because ever since that situation happened, I just overcame that fear um and then next thing you know started to grow and I got a lot of support and then Tracy reached out to me and she said she really wanted to use my comment for the protest and at first it was a lot of anxiety I said I, I wanted to be anonymous and um cuz of the fear of the town you know um that residual fear from all of my experiences so I didn't want that to bring back but I got the confidence I tra uh, you know I trusted Tracy and she used it and um I'm so glad that happened. And it's just been a process. And uh I'm still a little, I'm still a little, it's, it's, I'm still in a surreal moment right now. It's kind of, it's, it's crazy how we're at this point right now having a conversation. When for me, I just, I was trying to move on from my past, but I was able to overcome everything just from this moment. And Calicoon, she's right, 25, I was expecting 15, never expecting 500.
2: Never expected 500, but because your experience as a young person here was so pointed, I want to ask you, how did it feel to hear your words come out of someone else's mouth?
7: I teared up a bit when I heard it, when I saw the video. To hear from Tracy, it was so impactful because then it was just, I heard it and I was like, you know what, it's real. It happened. It happened and people are around listening to it and they agree like this is ridiculous. And then next thing you know, I hear other stories, feeling this, you know, people feeling the same way, you know, Henry, uh, Cola, uh, everybody else. And it's just like, I didn't feel alone anymore. You know, it's stressful way that I can let go.
1: I stand here today to call all white people to do the work, the work of self-education, of self-examination and of self-sacrifice that is necessary to end racism and its plague on black people and people of color in this country and beyond. The work starts at home, in ourselves, in our families, in our houses, in our schools, in our towns, in our counties. A young black man of African descent who lived near Calicoon for the majority of his childhood shared his story of growing up here and received death threats for having done so. He must therefore remain anonymous in order to protect himself and his family. But he and I have been in dialogue and believe it is important for his story to be told, and that white allies must publicly step forward to share his story and others and to call for a commitment to end racism from all of our white community members. These are his words.
7: I used to live near the Calicoon area for the majority of my childhood. If you have any remorse and you want to believe that you're not part of the problem, you have to do more than just a protest. You have to change the whole culture of your town. You have to open a dialogue and face the difficult questions. Delaware Valley Central School was a prime example of institutionalized and indoctrinated racism in its most volatile form. From kindergarten to eighth grade, I grew up in an environment where I was tortured, gaslighted, oppressed, suppressed, traumatized, bullied, all because I was speaking my truth about what was really happening to me. I was treated like three-fourths of a person. My peers failed me. My teachers failed me. The faculty failed me. All the while, Calicoon supported all of it. I'm so glad that school closed down, because it ruined my life. I wasn't able to form friendships, nor trust anyone because of my trauma, which affects my adult life to this day. When I graduated from Sullivan West, I had people come up to me to apologize for what they had done. But in truth, it meant nothing. You still had privilege while people of color did not. You can't take back the years of emotional pain, distress and isolation. You have to live with that for the rest of your lives. Calicoon, this is the end result of your ignorance. I remember getting beat up in a gym locker room or in the hallways and being called a nigger repeatedly. Every day. I remember having to defend myself on the bus every day because of the color of my skin. No child of color should ever have to grow up in an environment that toxic. The white community needs to hold themselves accountable. There was not one good memory of my time while living in Sullivan County. I remember walking down my road to meet with a friend, just to be chased down by someone in an old beat-up truck shooting their gun at me as I ran into the woods while they were saying, let's catch these niggers. You have to do better. You have to do more. The conversation cannot be a blip in a moment. Systemic racism started with the white community, created a privilege that you possess, and it can most certainly end it. So, I challenge you today to do something about it. While I won't be there in person today, it means a lot that my experience will be shared for the greater good of dismantling white supremacy, white entitlement, and white privilege. Enabling these behaviors only perpetuates the hate and exclusion.
2: Tracy, what did it mean to you to actually speak the words?
1: Well, racism is really complicated. I mean, in some ways it's simple, but there's a complex sort of history. White people taking the mic, controlling the narrative. And so, you know, when I reached out to Marcus, my intention was, was just to ask him if he would like it to be read. In the event that his voice could be heard, And it was important for people to know this happens here in our schools with the children in our schools, with people who grow up here. And and so I felt that was why it felt important to me to read. And um, a lot of my work that I've been thinking about is um, is how important it is for white people to speak up right now. We white people must accept this challenge. Right now, in this moment, showing up for racial justice at this and other protests is a good first step, but it is only a first step. We have a long road, a lifetime road ahead of us, and we cannot tire. We have a responsibility to be aware, to be awake, to be alert to racism, white supremacy, white entitlement, white privilege, white patriarchy in our actions and the actions of our friends, families, neighbors, civic leaders, teachers, grocers, and strangers. It is our work to actively engage ourselves every day in the work of dismantling racism. We have to figure this out. It is not the work of our black brothers and sisters to tell us what we have got wrong. We need to go into the corner and take a time out and figure it out for ourselves and get it right. We cannot continue to stand idly by, quietly looking away at even the slightest hint of harm. When the fervor of this moment subsides, we must continue our work. We cannot wait for rallies and protests or the death of another black man or woman to wake us up once again.
2: When we come back, more with our guests. We're here today talking about the courage to change and a change that did come in Calico, New York, a small rural town where 500 people showed up in the name of George Floyd and in conscience for themselves and for us all. I'm Janice Adams. More with our guests when we return after the break. on the Janice Abram Show. We're talking about the courage to change and an amazing demonstration that took place in Calico, New York, the Sunday preceding the funeral of George Floyd. Indeed, demonstrations have been taking place all across America, but rural America has even been breaking rank in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the demonstrations that took place. And a place like a rural place, less than 3,000 people in population, Calicoon, New York, found itself really coming out for hashtag Black Lives Matter. With me on the show today, Henri Padu, Isaac Green Diebold, Christina Smith, Marcus Brown, Tracy Broyles, Zarina Padu, and Zia Kaloa. Now, of our guests, four of you actually have grown up here in the Calicoon area, in in this uh, Sullivan County area right before one crosses into Pennsylvania. Kaloa, Henri, Zarina, Marcus, You grew up here and each of you has expressed that there was something that you experienced that was not respectful of you. But did you have a favorite memory of being here at all? Do you have a treasured memory of childhood in this area? Henri?
5: I have a few good childhood memories because I can remember some parts of my childhood but i'd always remember just walking right down the road to the movie theater and i saw spike his 3d with my sisters and my cousins and that was pretty cool because we lived right by the movie theater we could walk to the movie theater after that walk down get some ice cream or go to the park you know and have some fun those were the good childhood memories there in calicoon Mm
2: zarina what about you
6: I agree with Henry. It was kind of cool to live next to a movie theater, um, having the train tracks right behind us, although some people would think that was a little weird and loud. It was nice because I, I haven't really seen trains. And you know, you see a lot of that in the city, but you don't see it up here. So to know that there was a train right in my backyard was pretty, pretty crazy. Um, it was a very small and tight knit community that we were in. So we really knew everyone around us. The lakes were beautiful. We had a pretty interesting, fun childhood. Kaloa, what about you?
0: I always enjoyed sports in school, and I had like a complicated type of childhood because I had experienced like bullying and different things. So it was kind of strange. It was a very strange upbringing. So sports was always one of the best things for school. My writing, I used to write in school, some of the very things that I do now. So those were always enjoyable. That was always fun.
2: Marcus, you, and I'm asking this question because we know from what you already said how difficult it was, but I want people to understand what gets taken away by racism.
7: Listening to everybody, um, I'm so glad y'all had those experiences. For me, I was not so lucky. I grew up you know hating to go to school every day and you know having to as soon as I get on the bus and I go through the classrooms um, you know either teachers were giving me a hard time some put their hands on me some you know I had you know you know students coming through and berating me calling me the n-word and you know, putting their hands on me and all the while the environment, the, they allowed it. So when I came home, that was my sanctuary. When I came home, you know, I had my, my, my mom and my pops, my grandparents, like I said, they raised me since I was six months old. And, um, you know, I remember going outside and like playing in the fields on around the house. I remember, You know, playing my saxophone on my piano, writing poetry, you know, doing all these things to just let go of all this anxiety and put it into something that's positive. That's how I voiced myself growing up, because when I went when I was growing up, I never had the opportunity to have a voice because I was always knocked down a few pegs. Um, Because one, I was a child of color who was very intelligent for his age, uh, very articulate. And two, when you're telling an adult uh what's happening to them especially in a racist racist environment right they don't like that and they they feel like you're taking away their power so what do you do you impose yourself on them and that's exactly what i experienced um i wish i wish i had the opportunity to meet people who looked like me and so that way i didn't have to feel alone understood um
2: What brought your families here? The image of what a town like this would be is that it is a farming community and that it was just, quote, naturally all white. I don't know why anybody thinks that since it was originally indigenous, but they just think of it as naturally all white. What brought your families to this area? Marcus,
7: let me go back to you. My mom and my pops, they came up into the area more so because they they had a really good experience. They used to live in the city um, when they had had me and they were raising me. They wanted to raise me in a nice area where I can you know thrive and enjoy the scenery and such. So they came up to the area. And my my pops was a writer. You know he was an English professor for over 38 years, um, and he just wanted to have some inspiration. And my mom was a so you know a counselor. And they actually had a radio station WJFF making waves. So um, they just wanted to have an environment where I could thrive and really enjoy enjoy life.
2: Does your family now know?
7: Oh, my my family knew. My mom and my (laughs) pops were right there every step of the way. Um, And most times they were there every they were at the school every day. Um, They always had a call from the principal. The principal would always say, well, this is happening. You know what I mean? He acted up. He raised his voice against the teacher. He's claiming that these kids banged up on him. You have to do something about it. And, you know, my mom would just, my, my mom and pops would come up and they would advocate for me. And, you know, with my guidance counselor right there, because she also knew what was happening. So, um yeah, they're the only, they they were the ones that knew.
2: And they supported you. Yeah, every day. Yes. Kaloa, Zarina and Henry, what brought your families to the area? Henry, let's start with you.
5: I'm pretty sure that my family had family back here and they moved back here because I know that my mom was in the in Maryland and then my dad was in the city and they all kind of grew up here. Yeah. Like when they were younger. And I'm pretty sure that's what made everybody come back because now almost all of my family's here and I still have some family up in Maryland.
2: And uh Zarina, do you have anything to add to that memory? So my
6: grandmother, I know that their uh, mindset was kind of the same as Marcus's parents'. This was my grandparents. Um, they wanted a better future for their children, better school systems. They did live in the city at the moment and they finally had the opportunity to buy a house up here. And um, they had moved up here and my father and my mother had met and they kind of just stayed up here and helped, and I mean, and raised us as well. Clara.
0: What about you? Um, My mother followed a group of people up here who were starting a community here, and she followed them here. Some of them were family members and uh, relatives. So she came up here because they came up here. And the idea was a sense of community and to get out of the city and go to something better, because thinking the city would get worse as we um, continue to grow. But uh, the experience was actually worse up here than it was in the city in some cases.
2: I have been speaking with the four black participants, co-organizers to some extent, of the demonstration in Calicoon. I want to ask the same question to the white participants, organizers of the Calicoon demonstration. Chrissy, let me begin with you, since this idea starts with you.
3: Oh, that's a a great question. Um, So I purchased a a little house up here about five years ago. I think it was 2015. Uh, We bought this little house up here. And at the time I was still living in Brooklyn and I was working in Brooklyn. Um, And so I would come up on the weekends and we would come up here. We would fix up this little old house. We'd paint a wall. We'd you know, it was really a a dream come true for us because I think we'd been in the city for a while and we kind of, as the story goes with all weekenders, you know, we just kind of wanted like a pressure release valve on the weekends and some fresh air. And, um, so after doing that for a couple years and being up here and really just getting more and more excited, the more I would come up, um, about what was happening in the various small hamlets up up here and and how I was seeing some of these old storefronts start to come back to life and sort of this new life was being you know popping up all over the place. I I started to want to spend more time up here. So when the movie theater, the Calicoon Theater, which which I'm the owner of, when it came up for sale a couple years ago, something about the building and something about the space felt really right. And that actually that could be my favorite memory of, of this area. I can't even really explain it. I'd worked in performance venues and and music venues my whole life, but something about that building and that little old movie theater, just it's like, it embraces you. It's almost like the building gives you a hug when you walk into the room. And I just saw like, it was like in an instant, I just saw all the possibilities of what this place could be. And what my life could be if I, if I committed myself to this place and to this building and to this, this theater.
2: But those not from the area, um, let's just say, you know, this movie theater that you're referring to is not so small and it, it is kind of a jewel in the town
3: um, and the only movie theater in a 50 mile radius. That's right. It's 380 seats. So it is quite sizable, but it still is a single-screen movie theater. It was built in 1948 with an Art Deco facade, and it was a lot to take it on as well. I mean, I, I went from, you know, speaking back to also the the race issue at hand that we're talking about, you know, I went from, in some ways, being so embraced immediately by the community um, oh, welcome, our new movie theater owner. We're so glad you're here. You're so wonderful. And then the second film that I showed was Spike Lee's Black Klansman. And you could feel in some people just a, a confused shift about whether or not they were happy with the change that was coming to the Gallagher Theater. You know, it's, it's something that is still pervasive up here. And and I felt it right then and there, the second film that I showed. And in your own coming of age, do you know what your first memory of race was? I've actually been having a lot of conversations with, uh, obviously, as we all have, about race and about growing up white. And, and, um, I've been speaking about this with friends a lot lately. I can't recall my first memory. I do know that my parents very specifically raised me in a household where I think they were of the mind that if we just aren't racist and we just don't ever let racist things be said in our household and we never let jokes, racist jokes can't happen in this home, that it just won't exist. We'll build a perfect sort of world in this house and, my parents had black friends and they would come over and it was like, it was like nobody ever talked about it because it was all okay. And in some ways I think I'm learning that as lovely as that seems, what happens is you grow up and then you still learn that it's systematic and that it's out there and that it pervades absolutely everything. It's in the air, you know, in, in so many ways, you can't make a move in America without understanding that race and race relations are a part of it. So, as much as I think my parents did their best in the best way that they could to sort of shield us from the reality of it. There's nothing you can do, I think, except to, to talk to your kids when they're young and explain to them that it exists and, and be proactive about those conversations.
2: Yeah. Isaac, let me come back to you for a second. Um, you have mentioned that you didn't actually grow up here, but that, um, you grew up in the city and then came up here, but you do have a family history up here. Tell us about your family in this Calicoon area.
4: I moved up here because my dad died from brain cancer who owned land up here and I inherited that land. And he grew up in farmlands outside of Detroit. And although he was an architect working in the city, We really wanted to live um, in an area that was more farmland. Um, But when I inherited land as a 21-year-old, I was like, what is this ownership thing? And it blew my mind. It was like, I own land? And it just felt long, weird. I I was very confused what the responsibility actually meant. So the last 10 years have been a lot about really understanding what this privilege and entitlement to ownership of space and earth means. Um, And it's it's pushed me in directions that I never expected to go.
2: Did I remember correctly that your uncle or someone close to the family has a business restoring old
4: barns or? I call Mark Kepin and Wendy Townsend, my aunt and uncle. They are not blood relatives, but they are family and I live on their farm. Mark grew up in rural Western New York.
2: And I asked about him because in that preservation of those old barns, these these artifacts and um, some people come up and they see that as a very romantic kind of um, image, restoring an old barn. Other people see it as the heart of the Hudson Valley. Other people see it as its legacy From when, um, you know, there was slave labor in the area or migrant labor in the area. What, if you know, attracted him to this idea of restoring these artifacts of history?
4: When he was a young boy and he was watching the farmers around him who were his neighbors who were struggling to make ends meet, he was impressed upon them their work ethic and their flexibility and their resilience that you know, when suddenly there were new regulations that made it more difficult to be a dairy farmer. Hey, I'm going to switch my whole operation now to, you know, raising livestock of some other kind, or I'm going to shift to, you know, working. And so Mark spent a lot of time on these farms working, um, and also in lofts. And I think he found that haylofts, for him at least, were a place where he could escape a little bit. Some of the, uh, the work that he had to do every day. Um, he didn't have an easy life growing up. And there was something I think maybe very romantic and poetic about it.
2: And I'll ask you the same question that I asked Chrissy, uh, which is, what is your earliest memory of race?
4: Yeah, actually when you asked that question, I got a bit emotional. i grown up pretty blind actually to race in many ways. But as a, student going to brooklyn friends a quaker school i had an african-american librarian who was one of my best friends and there was nothing explicit that he said to me that stands out but he was definitely um i think the first person that made that started to open my eyes to the inequalities that are raging in this country
2: and Tracy, everybody else has spoken with a background of being from the North. Your background is from the Southern states. Tell us about where you come from and how you grew up. Your favorite memory.
1: I grew up in, um, in Baton Rouge and Monroe, nor- in Louisiana. So that was both in South Louisiana and North Louisiana. And my father really grew up in the country and my mother grew up in cities so we lived in cities but my favorite things in the world were to go out to the country whether that was to a farm or the woods or that's where i came alive and that's where the world felt free yeah it was just i loved being in the in the spaces of quiet and nature and my favorite memories were being on rivers or in the woods whenever i could get that opportunity you know when you think about race and you're from Louisiana and you're in the Northeast, people sort of oftentimes bring a lot of assumptions um, about that. And those are, you know, valid assumptions, Um, you know, but in my experiences I've lived all over the country, I've found racism, you know, is pervasive and is as entrenched here in Philadelphia where I lived in Washington, D.C., as it is in Louisiana. It may take different shapes. Um, some communities where I've lived, it felt um, that people knew that it was wrong or they would be more quiet about it. Um, but as a child, you know, my, my first two memories were, one, I, I vividly remember playing in the front yard and the mailman, his name was Willie, And he was black. And I remember one day um, talking to him and and thinking, this is weird. And I I had to have been in first or second grade um, and thinking it was strange because the only black people I saw were people who – the male, Willie, um, the guys who picked up the trash, people who worked for other people in their homes – I just didn't have any exposure, and I went to a private school in first through third grade. In fourth grade, I went to a public school, and that school um, was, to my, to my recollection, was a single-story school with classrooms on two sides, playgrounds on either side of this long rectangle, and a hallway down the center. And my vis- my memory of that school is that all the children on the playground were white and all the children in my classroom were white. I'm, this would have been in the seventies in the late seventies, I think. And, um, when we would line up for the school bus, I have this memory of there being a row of children that I was getting on a bus with that were all white and a row of children to my right that were all black. And I have this memory of going to the cafeteria for lunch, and seeing in the classrooms across the hall, all the kids. And I've been interested in going to look up those records because some of the segregation was happening inside of the buildings where I went to school. I asked questions, but people didn't really have answers for little girls about that then.
2: So it was the veneer of desegregating while maintaining segregation within the building and in the north, they call that the tracking system. Henri Padu, Isaac Green-Debo, Christina Smith, Marcus Brown, Tracy Broyles, Serena Padu and Zia Kaloa. You've heard their stories and each one comes to this place we call rural America from a different place with their own stories all adding to the portrait of what rural America actually is and looks like and feels like. And um, it's really quite a story. So even that is something that tells us that this is a time of change, to change our perceptions. That's the thing that's in the offering right now. More with our guests when we return after the break. Trails of
6: trouble Roads of the battles, paths of victory, we shall walk. The road is dusty, the road is a mud. Better road is a wing. The day is not
2: far off. on the Janice Adams show with my guests. They have been kind enough to join us here on the show today because they were part of really what was an extraordinary event. The Sunday before the funeral of George Floyd, there was a demonstration in rural upstate New York, a small town with less than 3,000 residents and 500 people gathered on the lawn for a demonstration in support of Black Lives Matter. Each of you, not so much where do we go from here, because we have all kind of come to an agreement that we have to keep this going. But I want to know what your ask is. What is your ask? What is your demand for the work that you are doing?
7: Marcus. Uh, My ask is that, you know, you don't let your trauma, anxiety, and fear get in the way of the greatness that you already have, right? You already possess it. You have a voice. Um, you just need to let it manifest. And right now, you know, you you just have to let it out because that's where your strength is. And strength comes in numbers. So if one person does it, everybody's going to come together and support you. And you're not alone. Henry.
5: What's happening right now in the world is we're all dealing with the coronavirus, COVID-19. So a lot of people aren't working around the world. China, it's, it's a global thing right now. So a lot of people aren't working, but what we're doing is watching. So a lot of people are sitting here watching what's happening on the TV. There, there's no distractions. No one has any distractions, but what's going on right now. So with that being said, even after this is over, hopefully people still want to keep this momentum going.
6: Zarina, what about you? It's to really unite, to keep doing it, to educate. Don't just educate your your black friends educate the white ones have those uncomfortable conversations that need to be had just to really stand by each other and love each other for who we really are isaac
4: my ask if you're white just stop pause listen If you think you know the answers if you think you're smart if you are smart just stop pause Listen.
0: Kaloa. In every community, there's a derogatory name for people, but there's no reason to call them that. Do things in, in your privacy of your home if you need to, because that is your right. But when you come out to public, a man
1: I knew, he was a, had, was a doctor, used to say, use intelligent speech. Tracy? We have a long road and a lifetime road, and that we must be awake and aware an alert to racism and white supremacy and white advantage and white patriarchy. And this is daily work. My ask at this moment is that we as white people and as as a white woman, I pray that we have the perseverance to continue that work as long as we need to.
2: And Chrissy, we end where we began with you, the person who got the idea that there should be a demonstration in support of George Floyd and human rights in general in Calicoon. What's your ask?
3: I think that I would echo what Marcus said earlier, which is um, as a white person to utilize your privilege rather than weaponize it. That's a concept that uh, every Caucasian person in America should meditate on for, you know, as much time as they need to really think about ways that you can proactively engage.
2: Tracy Broyles, Marcus Brown, Isaac green Debo, Z A Kaloa, Henri Padu, Zarina Padu, and Christina Smith. My thanks to them and to you for joining us today on The Janice Adams Show. Thanks, too, to two young men who opened the show, 12-year-old singing sensation Kedron Bryant and Calicoon demonstrator commentator Simon Swartz. Thanks, to to Isaac Green Diebold and Rosie Starr for recordings of the Calicoon demonstration. For more about today's show, visit my website, JanosAdams.com From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill Post-production Jason Dole This show is a production of Janos Adams, LLC All rights reserved
6: Until the killing of Black men Black mother's sons Is as important As the killing of white men Others sons, that which touches me most is that I had a chance, chance to work with people, mm-hmm. passing on to, to others. others, that which was passed
1: oh. on to me. Sing it with us. Guess. Come on. You- we hear-